Hello and welcome to the ANA Marketing Futures Podcast. I'm Mike Berberich, Senior Director of Marketing Futures and your host for this episode. Stop me if you've heard this one. Digital media has fragmented the advertising landscape, rendering old stalwarts like Out of Home and Linear TV obsolete in today's on-the-go society. Yeah, then 2020 happened and all of a sudden, the television reclaimed its space as one of the central devices in our homes and our lives. Today, we're joined by Bob Ivins and Joe Kinsella of TV Square to discuss the rebirth of television and what it means to advertisers. Bob and Joe explained why direct-to-consumer brands are turning to TV in droves and gave their opinions on when we might finally see fully addressable TV ads. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I feel like we're uh, about to have a whole bunch of fun. Um, I would love to welcome to the Virtual Marketing Futures podcast studio, uh, Bob Ivins and Joe Kinsella from TV Squared. How are you doing today? In the house. Thank you for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. My pleasure. Um, So before we start diving into um, how, you know, one of the most kind of just iconic pieces of most any household for a good deal of the last 50 years, the TV, how that's gone through such transformation uh, this year and in in recent times. Let's learn a little bit about my uh, two new friends, Bob and Joe. If you could tell us just a little bit about yourselves and kind of how you wound up where you are doing the work that you're doing. You want to go first? How did I wind up here? You know what, Michael? I ask myself that question every single day when my alarm goes off. Um, uh, Joe Kinsella, for those that don't know me, president of TV Squared, uh, started this company with um, an amazing group of people in Scotland. Uh, They were the whole, the brains behind the operation and still are to this day um, to measure TV. And everybody told us that it couldn't be done. And yet here we are eight years later, uh, measuring full cross-platform television in 75 countries and proving everybody wrong, or maybe proving people right, uh, that TV really does work and um, is the most effective marketing channel of any that are out there. And Bob and I, Bob and I met, actually, uh, I accosted him outside a gent's toilet <laughs> in a restaurant. That is a new one for the- uh, I think we need to edit that out. Probably. <laughs> and then, and then we started out. talking about Man U, and I realized that he'd lived in England for 10 years. So, so unlike all Americans, he understood sarcasm. And we had a mutual <laughs> love for the beautiful game, which is football, not soccer. Uh, and we both support the same team. And now we both support the same team because we both work together at TV Squared. All right, Ivan's all you. <laughs> yeah, I, I got involved in attribution back in the day when it was called marketing mix modeling, you know, back when we had left-hand side variables like, you know, outcomes and then a bunch of right-hand side variables like advertising, distribution, price promotion, competitive activity, et cetera. And you spend a year doing a regression model. Um, and I, I learned about TV squared pretty soon after they started and the thought of these guys purely focused on, on measurement one and two, you know, purely focused in on making it as real time as possible. I love the concept and I've been, I've been watching them from the start. So when this opportunity came around, I jumped at it and I think, you know, they're in a great spot. 
like I said, they're purely focused on their one objective. They're not compromised by selling media. They're not compromised by doing anything else but measurement. And I think the fact that, you know, we live in a day and age when marketers are under pressure to do more with less or just with less, you know, having, having outcomes connected to uh, advertising um, and LinkedIn is near real time as possible is, is, you know, the right product at the right time. Mm -hmm. And so I think probably at any point in uh, the, the existence of TV squared, we probably could have had you guys on to talk about how TV is undergoing changes, you know, the past eight, 10 years, um, obviously the beginning of every marketing article from maybe 2010 to 2015 about the fragmentation of the media landscape uh, and how this has changed TV's role in a way. Um, we could have had this conversation any time in the past eight years. I'm, it's a, especially fascinating to have it now when kind of everything about the household, everything about everything has shifted so much due to uh, the lockdown caused by COVID-19 this year that uh, the TV, I don't know, this, this central place in the home that was kind of going through a lot of, I don't know, that the channel wasn't going through changes, but people's perspectives on it were. What has this year done to the kind of journey TV has gone on in, in, in fitting in with our lives? Um, it's definitely brought it back, right? So um, when we think about TV, we think about families together now sheltering in place. So even, you know, different generations all together back in the same house, kids home from school, kids home from university, overnight, uh, killing it because people are staying up late to watch shows that they wouldn't normally, you know, I, I've in my own podcast, we've referred to it as the water cooler. It's the safe place. It's where people get together um, to either watch the news or, you know, watch the election or whatever it is. It's that whole place where they either go to escape or they go to stay informed and I think, you know, it's it's rightly titled that this podcast is the revolution. I would say some of the things that I was talking about last year, we were looking at a three to five year time horizon, which was frustrating the hell out of me. And now here we are kind of galloping through it. So COVID for all its challenges, and there's no taking away from, from what they've been, um, in terms of uh changing tv and putting it back kind of front and center into um the you know again being the best marketing channel that there is in terms of reach um and impact for those advertisers in the direct consumer space that have stayed authentic and have been vulnerable during the time of, of covid19 have absolutely hands down won um and i think we're seeing more traditional advertisers now lean in because they're realizing that now TV is measurable and we can hold accountable to every single dollar. Um, there is a new way of buying TV, measuring TV and actually driving to the right audience. So, um, you know, super exciting to be in TV at a time like now, no better time to be here. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that, Chuck, that's all right, that, you know, back in the day, consumers were in control of just what they watched, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and it was probably pretty easy, 
easy to measure that kind of activity when it was just you know one thing to measure. But now consumers are control of not only what they watch, but when, where, and how, and that's making it really, really complicated to you know to reaggregate in terms of that audience. So I feel that Joe's absolutely right that TV was redefining itself um, on on pace, but I think COVID really accelerated that by a couple of years. Yeah, I've heard talking in almost every innovation-based conversation I've had in the past three, four, five months. Um, yeah, the notion that COVID just kind of pulled people, you know, so many things were on the the you know brink of becoming from potential to kinetic energy. And COVID just kind of took everybody's decks and threw them in the ocean and said, no, we're doing this right now if you yeah. want to continue on. So what have you been seeing from brands from the way brands are approaching TV in this now that we're kind of you know the first two months were a lot of sussing things out seeing what was possible and I feel like we've kind of been full fully fully pulled through that innovation kind of vortex from COVID what is the what are the activities what are the behaviors from TV advertisers that you've been seeing in recent months yeah I mean um the TV most trusted form of, of media, according to VAB, is 58% of people consider TV that trusted. So I think, you know, we kind of touched on it in the beginning, but a, a, we had a D2C education brand, Mike, who added OTT, right? So again, we're coming at this like everybody was doing broadcast, people were doing local cable, uh, people were heavily set in linear and all of a sudden, you know, subscribers are falling and streaming services are, are, are absolutely blowing up. So advertisers that we work with were leaning in saying, okay, well, I want to test and learn. What are these going to bring me not only from a performance standpoint, but also from an audience standpoint, you know, am I going after the right audience that's actually going to take an action buy my product sign up for my subscription service, you know, whatever the outcome might be. We saw a D2C education brand that added OTT into its media mix. First two months of lockdown, the brand's linear TV response increased by 63%, while its OTT performance went up to 85%. So all of a sudden, right, what has been pretty much a locked in budget is now like, oh, actually, you know what, I'm going to carve off a chunk of that and I'm going to go over and test OTT platforms. I'm going to test CTV. In certain cases, we've even seen people, we've even seen advertisers say, I'm going to take money from digital, like traditional, maybe social, and I'm going to pull it back into TV because it's having such a profound impact on my performance results. So, you know, and again, to your point, kind of new normal which is this um this kind of cross-platform mix it's all about testing and learning and being brave not going dark we have advertisers that are on 20 plus streaming platforms at any one time and they are you know again for them it's about where can i get available inventory that drives performance and audience engagement and awareness yeah, and I think the budgets from the advertisers are moving from this experimental stage to actually a commitment to the streaming services, and they're going to have to re-aggregate those, those audiences across platform, and I think that's, that's what we're starting to see. So would you say that it's kind of that 
the now uh, kind of ability to, to, to factor in some sort of performance uh, measurement in, in, in quicker time, the test and learn, you know, the idea of testing and learning on t television, maybe a decade ago, would just be a very funny notion. Um, right. But so do you think that that is one of the like real hooks for DTC companies? Because I know that they are in a position to just pull a lever, see if it's affecting revenue and kind of move on that. Do you think that that is sort of the, the, the crux of where DTC or are there other elements of TV that's a, uh, um, appealing to that industry? So a couple of things there. D2C is, you know, we're leaning into digital natives that are used to looking at data on an hourly basis, right? They're not going to sit there and say, okay, I'm going to give you a billion dollars and you can go and spend it and tell me who you think might watch it over the course of the next year, right? So it's about flexibility. It's also about optimization, which is a word to your point, Mike, that 10 years ago, you know, people would have like covered their mouths and sniggered. Like, don't be ridiculous. We're not going to optimize this. I think the combo of increased viewership, uh, consumers heightened reliance on e-commerce purchases. I mean, think about it. We've had bricks and mortar stores throw up e-commerce sites in, a, in five days and change their creative. Um, Plus, uh, lower TV inventory prices. You know, we've seen some of that dip uh, over the course of the last seven months. All of that is an ideal environment for D2Cs to thrive on TV. TV. The reality is the revolution is here. We are digitizing television. Data is available on a millisecond by millisecond basis to tell you how something is performing. And these buyers and sellers can cover their eyes for as long as they want and pretend that it's not there, but it's there. And we work closely with buy side and sell side to empower them to change the conversation with the advertiser. We also work directly with advertisers who are saying, you know what, if I don't have the flexibility and the transparency that I need, I'm just going to take my budget elsewhere. So it's opened up this huge world. It's also meant that the traditional kind of QSR, CPG are all now saying, hang on a second, I want a piece of that action. Right, Bob? Absolutely. No, I, I, think, I think the issue is that, you know, in a lockdown environment, everything's direct to consumer, you know? So to some extent, while we've, we've been fortunate to build our business on you know, the original or legacy business on a call to action that's online, now everybody's moving online because you have to be there if you're going to, you know, get the sale yeah. in an environment where we're increasingly looking at another lockdown. Yeah. I mean, Mike, we saw like fitness brands, you know, 200% up, education, 120% up, DTC, beauty and lifestyle, 78% up. Um, you know, just, you know, obviously we also saw industries that have been severely impacted, but to Bob's point, as we continue with, you know, uh, new numbers of new cases every day, advertisers need to be thinking about how they're spending 2021's budget and where the conversations we're having is all around, we need a return on investment for every single dollar we spend. And with you, therefore, you have to have measurement, you have to have attribution, and you have to understand your audience. And that's what we bring. And I'm just going to add on that. And I, sorry that I keep piling on. But, you know, as we head into, you know, another upfront season going into the spring, 
and there might be more uncertainty into the economy, the advertisers are going to want flexibility. And if you need to make a decision, you want to have metrics to make an informed decision. And I think that's going to put more and more pressure on you know, the, the products and services that we deliver to advertisers. Yeah, that all um, kind of makes perfect sense. And yeah, it's always kind of that grounding of going to the next thing is almost always driven by that, just returning to the business need of, of needing to know where money's going that is coming back to you. Um, so I touched on this a little bit before, but you know, it, it's not exactly like TV was in a, 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 a stasis before COVID, right? TV has been evolving greatly for a, a long time. For advertisers, there are more platforms, devices, and data. Um, and, you know, as we've been talking, the traditional measurement has been turned on its head. You know, you can't just tell me what the rating is for the, you know, 18 to 49 and, and, and expect me to turn around and be like, well, my job here is done. So, you know, as the industry continues to evolve, how can measurement consistently make sure it's keeping pace with the needs of advertisers? Because I feel like maybe we're hitting an inflection point, but it also did take TV some time to really catch up, accept the fact that things were changing and even get to this point. I'm going to jump in here quick before Joe does. I mean, I, this, this is like one of my favorite things. It's like, you know, Online advertising has been growing since 1995, you know, on a very steady upward curve. You know, in 96, it passed billboards and, you know, 2000 passed print and, you know, passed radio and TV kind of sat around while digital's, you know, shopping this narrative, better data, better targeting, better measurement and doing nothing. It's not that we didn't have time to prepare. You know, we've, the total ad business and TV has been flattened down for the last five or six years. And I think all of a sudden, you know, now that it's, it's here, we're forced to reconcile. We need to fix this data targeting measurement, you know, narrative and neutralize that advantages that digital has had. And the fortunate thing is, you know, we're hitting the market at the right time, you know, Viewing data is increasingly out there, collected, you know, at scale and available in the marketplace. Activity data, however you define that, whether it's visits to a website or purchases on a brick and mortar store, you know, is available. So it's putting those things together to prove the, the value of that, that ad budget. And I think the TV ad budget, and I think there's never been a better time to be in TV measurement than right now. And, you know, it's unfortunate for the legacy companies, um, you know, one's getting a divorce or just filed for, for, for divorce. Um, you know, one's trying to fight for survival and another one, um, you know, like Humpty Dumpty trying to put themselves back together again. I feel like, you know, innovative companies like TV Squared are positioned really, really well to take advantage of the data, the opportunity, and the market need. So... <clears throat> As we are the Marketing Futures podcast, we always like to take a look into the future, do a little speculation. We will not hold you to anything about what we're about to talk about. But 
how we're far gonna away? get a time machine we're gonna do a time machine together is that what it's um <laughs> well you know a few episodes back we were covering aristotle pretty thoroughly and how he might have messed up ai systems uh 2300 years ago so we do have a way way back machine but it is actually in the shop at the moment i thought i wasn't on that podcast yeah <laughs> um so how far do you away do you think we are from fully addressable tv ads from being able to place uh, perhaps down to an individual level, but with, with a real sense of granular uh, detail. How far are we away from fully addressable TV ads and what needs to happen tech and business-wise to make that a reality? Like, is there somebody, a lot of times there's like maybe a stakeholder or two where the ideal for the consumer might not be the ideal for uh, you know interested parties. So what needs to happen uh, tech and beyond for us to get to the fully addressable TV, you know, paradise that we, we think that we can get to. But I don't think all advertising needs to be addressable, to be honest. I mean, I, I get the question, but, you know, I, I don't, people will want to be on the Super Bowl and that's not household level addressability. I think addressability is more of a tactic that needs to be used from marketers' perspective. I don't think we want to have I don't think there's a need to have all TV inventory addressable. I get your question, but you're right. There's, there's cable plan investments that need to happen to be able to do that. There's a lot of other um, dominoes that need to fall to get to fully addressable. But then my question is, do you think the marketplace wants fully addressable TV? And I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think so. I'm going to jump in. Um, we surprise, are, surprise, surprise, surprise. We're measuring fully addressable ads today. So the way I categorize this, Mike, and Bob's heard me say this a million times, is this is we have currency grade data, right? At TV Squared. And the industry is crying out for a new currency or a combined set of currencies that make sense so how do we create a liquid marketplace that enables all sides of the trade to win okay and back before tv squared when i worked on wall street that's what we did we created currencies and you know and 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 that was kind of the world and i think about this industry still has to go through massive change to truly embrace that. And I mean that because there is a, there is a certain culture. There's a set of systems and processes and tools that are older than me um, that, you know, are used to buy, to buy inventory. And I think, you know, we need to just turn this thing on its head and we need to step back and let the machines do some of the work. So, you know, when, it, when I think about the revolution, we've gone from a, this is all art with a tiny bit of science to this is now more science with a tiny bit of art. So all those artists out there need to step back a little bit and let the science do some more of the talking. And I think as, a, as an industry, when we can embrace that culture and recognize that it's for the greater good, then we'll all win. Very well said. <clears throat> Very well said. Um, so I'd like to pivot a little bit uh, and, and ask you a question that we ask every one of our Marketing Futures podcast guests. And we leave it open because we kind of just want to see where your head's at with it. So 
What are your thoughts on diversity and inclusion? So I actually stood up, um, wow, Melissa, when was it? Earlier this year at IAB ALM in a very, very packed room and did a presentation about diversity and inclusion with Monique Nelson, um, one of my biggest heroes in this industry. And the big takeaway for me, Mike, was meeting people where they are. Um, what we tend to do with diversity and inclusion is we tend to kind of have these sporadic moments as companies in an industry where we feel like we need to do something or worse than that, tick a box. And I think COVID especially has really helped the industry to wake up to diversity and inclusion. And what I mean when I say that is everybody doesn't have to be in New York City. Everybody doesn't have to be from a particular school. You know, that person that has never been able to do a commute because they're taking care of somebody at home or that person that's never been able to do a commute because uh, maybe they're in a wheelchair and they can't get on, you know, all of those reasons, those people, all of those people are now accessible to businesses like ours um, that bring different culture, different skill set, different values, um, different outlook. And I think, again, you know, there's there's been a ton of hardship as a result of COVID, but it's really opened up the opportunity. And I see businesses like ours um, and leaders like Bob and I that have to bring this front and center and have to say, we're not doing enough. We need to do more, we need to embrace this. And it needs to be a continual work in progress business objective. So it's never something that you get to the end of and say, okay, I did that. And, you know, I'll cross it off my list. Like it's continued ed education. And um, one of the best things about COVID is being able to bring this to the forefront. I mean, we've had so much sensitivity in the world and in America, especially during 2020. Um, but, you know, I, I continue to promote the opportunity for people to have really hard conversations and to know that they can have those hard conversations in a really safe space. Um, and, you know, that's the, the big thing for us is to continue to promote that and not expect immediate change overnight, right? You, you can't just suddenly turn around and go, right, diversity and inclusion, get everybody. It, you know, meet people where they are and, and, and be, be making sure that every time you're putting your best foot forward and you're making sure that if there are difficult conversations to be had, that you're promoting a safe space for people to have that and people to grow and people to feel included no matter what, race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, all the things is what we need to be open to in 2020. I have an 11 year old daughter who inspires me and teaches me every single day um, you know many of what we carry around in our industry is learned behavior and there's a huge opportunity for us to really drive the change so the next generation and the generation after that um, doesn't come up against some of the same hurdles that we've had to well I hadn't talked to Joe earlier today I know that her daughter was taking a math test and I know that she was inspiring her how to understand math. So I get that, I get that comment there. No, I, I think two things. One, I, I think um, 
I, I hate to set objectives, but I do think that what gets measured gets done. And I do think as an organization, you need to put things in place that we want to achieve this and have metrics in place to monitor that. Um, and Joe also mentioned this. I think the, you know, the younger generation is so much more sensitive, so much more advanced than my generation. I'll, I won't include Joe in this that one, um, my generation. And I, and I learn things from my kids about diversity all the time. So I think that I would like to see more companies put, you know, markers up there. And I see, you know, you see more and more of that in the paper these days that there's companies that are, you know, they're going to do this, this, and this. And I think things will change. But um, to Joe's point earlier, you got to be on it all the time and create safe space for conversation. Well, I really couldn't ask for a better answer than that. Uh, that is a lot of food for thought. That was a feast and I appreciate it from both of you. Um, yeah, I just think that it touched on so very much that it, this is life, this is breathing. It's not a thing to check off or finish, you know? Um, so although you guys did such a great job there, this, this doesn't get you a free pass from the hardest question we ask on the podcast. It's that time. I hope you're ready. Um, Bob, Joe, we're going to need answers from both of you on this one. I, I know my favorite album. Well, I didn't ask, I didn't ask the question yet. Oh, um, sorry. I was, I was doing Jeopardy already. Sorry, my, my mistake. Oh. <laughs> um, Bob and Joe, what is your favorite? What are your favorite albums of all time? And why, Bob? I feel like you're so excited. So let's start with you. I've known I've known this answer since 1976. There's there's an album called Buckingham Nicks. It was the demo album that Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham pressed before they joined Fleetwood Mac. Um, and it only got played because she was cleaning house at a record producer, and the guy's like, "Who is this?" It's it's a it's one of my favorite albums. It is my favorite album. Buckingham Nicks, buy it. I think you can find check it. Check that out. I have something written here. I don't know if you can see it. I do. It says Stevie Nicks. <laughs> Are you so shaking Ivan's right now? <laughs> you want me to go get the vinyl? By the way, she's naked on the front of the cover. Right. I was literally about to like, okay, so uh, my album is This Is Acting by Steer. Um, for a whole host of Iron Man, heart surgery, all kinds of really cool kind of life reasons. Um, but my next one was like, really, it really gone back to listening to Stevie Nicks and Fleetwood Mac. So, and I had no idea you were gonna say that, Mr. Bob. Buckingham Nicks, it was the album that they did together um, before they joined Fleetwood Mac. And they're actually touring with the, in like Georgia playing that album when I got the call from Mick Fleetwood to join the band. There you go. I also did write down uh, Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen just because I'm a Brit and Freddie Mercury's a legend. Oh, absolutely. Well, good answers all around. I feel like if we had the uh, budget for it, we'd do a <clears throat> two for Tuesday uh, uh, Fleetwood Mac thing here. Just really lean into the whole radio vibe, but uh yeah. But I love it. Double Stevie Nicks. I don't think that's going to shock anybody uh, when I say that's a first here at the podcast. Um, 
so let's see if we can go two for two. Uh, <laughs> let's see if you guys are, are, are stalking each other's Spotify play- playlists currently. Um, again, to both of you, what are you listening to now? When, why? And that could be an artist, a song, a podcast, anything. What, 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 what's, what's going on now? I just listened to this Springsteen interview um, by Malcolm Gladwell, which was pretty interesting. Um, and he was talking about, this is my favorite line, he was talking about, um, I guess it's the 45th, and I'm, and I'm not a huge Springsteen fan. Sorry, Joe, I know you're in New Jersey and he's, he's a legend, but... Um, <laughs> It's the 45th anniversary of Born to Run, I think. And he's like, I, he goes like, that just reminded me. So I called up a friend of mine and I wanted to do an album cruise. So we got in his car, got a fr- picked up a friend and played the album, you know, finished, start to finish. I'm like, that would be fun. A little album cruise with Bruce Springsteen listening to Born fun. to Run. Yeah, that would be fun. Um, okay, artist, um, Calio, I'm listening mm. to right now. Uh, you should check it out. Um, and my a couple of go tos: "Happy Place" by Fern Cotton. Yeah. Because uh, again, she's a Brit. Uh, she's done Glennon Doyle, George Ezra, and Ricky Gervais interviews. You should listen to all of them because they're awesome. And um, Gabba, uh, which is some cool kind of meditation stuff. So they're oh, my. Yeah, there are a couple of my of my go tos, but uh, Calio is is what I'm listening to right now. Very cool. So before uh, before I let you guys go, um, how can our listeners get in touch with TV Squared? Don't call me. Whatever you do. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, call, call me. Call me, and I'll text you her number. Mike when we first started the company I I want to say that my my cell phone number was on the website like that's 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 where we were um info at tvsquared.com joe at tvsquared.com hey just drop us a note there's there's plenty of places to chat on the website um linkedin uh we're very active on social and twitter too so come and check us out um i'm sure you can find us both pretty easily that is excellent guys thank you so much bob joe this has been a a fantastic conversation i've learned some stuff so that's already means it's a good episode so thank you um and yeah hopefully uh sometime in the future we'll, we'll have you back on just to go like a, a Stevie Nicks throwdown. Let's see who the bigger fan is. Uh, that would be good. We'll I'll come up with some questions. Joe, come up with some questions. Then we'll, we'll do head to head. <laughs> I feel a whole spinoff vibe coming on here. Guys, thank you so very much. This has been the Marketing Futures Podcast, and you heard it here first. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the ANA Marketing Futures Podcast. Got an idea for an upcoming topic or guest? Shoot us a note at marketingfutures at ana.net. Make sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, if you want more innovation goodness, head on over to marketingfutures.ana.net.